there any any prayer requests? start in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself, particularly this morning in the Mass, for your words to us always and your presence. And everything we do, um, help us to stay in your presence, one with you. Um, strengthen us um, to do all we can to nurture um, the life of you that we carry within us so that we can become whole. Um, help wipe away our sins, strengthen us in our efforts to take seriously our need to put them away. Whatever they are, excesses, deficiencies, whatever they are, to become virtuous, good in you. You call all of us to holiness. Help us to take that seriously. I ask a special grace on all of us here in the work that we're doing Help us to be good readers, to learn to be open, to not be afraid, particularly where things sometimes get ugly. There's something to learn about ourselves in all of this. Give us the courage to do that. I ask a special blessing on Maddie. Um, surround her with your protection. Um, let her not be afraid of delays. Um, she misses school. There's some good for us always, um, particularly against pressing. Whatever happens, help her make her peace with it. Um, heal her, let her heart be quiet about all that's going on. Um, let her find more of you than the difficulty she's facing. I ask the same for Matt, for Debbie and Bruce's son in this trial, this separation. Be with him. Help him to see a good. Um, um, be there for Christopher and Kayla. Um, help them to continue the work that they're doing with each other. Uh, to return, not to return, to, to grow from the difficulties they're having to a better love. And, um, ask for a special grace for the souls in purgatory too. I help them to see what they didn't see here, what they were blind to, and to feel what they didn't. And since that's a possibility for all of us here, help us to see now and to feel now. And we are called to see this life as a purgatory for us to put our sins away, strengthen us in our efforts to do that. We are glad for this time together. We offer these prayers to you, Christ, our Lord. Amen. Okay, can we take out these coker before we start? I want to do a very, very brief review on Hemingway and start O'Connor because there's a lot to do with it. But I said I was going to do a quick review of Burt Norton. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> um, we, we will, when we're done with all the quartets, I'll go back and pull them together, but 
I really want to get on to the story, so. Remember, the four quartets are, by analogy, four separate instruments in a quartet, yeah? And each one has different parts. Each one has a major theme or themes, one or two, and each of the parts is a variation on that theme. So the, the counterpart, the analog for each of the quartets is music. Um, he is trying to get as close to music as he can in the form and the style and implicitly in the, in the background of each one. Um, some critics have claimed that the major theme or focus of each quartet is one of the four essential elements. Earth, air, earth, water, and fire. In that, in that order. Air, earth, water, and fire. Okay. Um, I think there's some truth to that. It, it, it seems to me that it's harder to identify the major theme in Burnt Norton as air, although there's that putrid air, you know, that runs through that poem. The interesting thing about air is that it's transparent. We see things through it. So even if it's there, we don't always see it. We're not aware of it. Um, you can't mistake the importance of earth for East Coker or water for dry salvages. They become dominant then, and you'll see when you get to Little Gidding how important fire is. Um, I happen to believe that Little Gidding is the finest of the quartets, and when we get there, I'll, I'll read something that I've written on it. It's, to me, what Elliot's doing is just extraordinary, um, and it's so subtle that we can miss it. The other thing to keep in mind when we read East Coker is the importance of ecclesiastic there's a time for this, there's a time for this, there's a time for this, there's a time for this. That echoing patter from Ecclesiastic um, is, the, is the underlying principle of this poem. Because it's about the, the apparent cyclical character of things in, in nature. Things come to be, they pass away, they go back to the earth. They take their place with dung and dirt with feces and dirt. Remember, Eliot has no qualms about using things that some people think are inappropriate for poetry. There's nothing in the world that's inappropriate if it's used in the right way. Things go to the earth, we return to the earth, um, we spring from the earth, we come out of the earth. Um, um, we're corporeal creatures. We draw something of our bodies from earth. So he's very aware of the cyclical nature. Remember, the major image in, in Burnt Norton was this intersection between time and the timeless, and all the ways in which that still point at the center showed itself in other ways. Here, the concern is this apparent cyclical nature, things coming into being and returning. Okay? East Coker was the, the manor house of Eliot's ancestor. Um, an Eliot himself, um, who wrote a major book in England. And so like Bert Norton, um, if this place has a history. Unlike Bert Norton, this one did not burn down. Remember, one of the themes of Bert Norton is things have passed away and yet in some strange paradoxical way are still present, like, like the uh, potpourri 
You know, the flowers are dead, but they still give off a scent. Echoes aren't real, but they refer to something real. Here, East Coker is a manor house. Um, it, it was one of, um, that belonged to Elliot's, um, one of his ancestors. Both of these homes, Burnt Norton and um, um, East Coker, were houses in which people took a very reverent attitude towards their faith. Um, they would gather in the morning for prayers and say prayers through the day. So it was a very small, intimate community, um, very given um, to its faith. And now it looks back to an ancient past, a past that we've gone beyond because we're in the modern world. Who does that anymore? Who says prayers anymore? So Eliot has still got this, this um, strange conflation of time, something that was of the past that no longer is and yet brought into the present through his poetry so that the past and present merge in some strange way in the poem. We can't forget that, in the poem. And the question is, is it only in the poem? Or is the poem representing, revealing something that actually takes that form outside itself? Is there a merging of the past and present in ways we don't see? Or is it just in the poetry? That's all. I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to read it. And, and we'll pick it up again. We'll pick up the second part next week when we meet. Four Quartets, East Coker. Oh, sorry. I've already undone, undone myself. When Mary Queen of Scots went to her execution, when Queen Elizabeth had her executed, remember she was Catholic, and she posed a threat to the English crown because they had turned away from the faith and the, the Protestant Reformation was well underway and established itself politically. Henry VIII had already made himself the head of the church on matters of doctrine. Stunning, stunning display of power to me. But Mary Queen of Scots was a threat to England because she wanted to restore Catholicism to England. She was executed. It's reported that on the day that she was executed, I can't remember if she was hung or beheaded. Beheaded. Was she beheaded? So at just, I think just, just before the moment of beheading, she spoke these words, knowing that she was, in a minute, she would be dead. She said, in my end is my beginning. How wonderful is that? She had no fear of what was about to happen because she knew where she was going. In my end is my beginning. Ellie's aware of that and watch what happens in that poem because he's going to start with that inverted and at the very end it's going to be turned around uh, to take the form that it took when Mary spoke it. Okay? He's Coker. In my beginning is my end. In succession, houses rise and fall, crumble, are extended, are removed, destroyed, restored, or in their place is an open field, or a factory, or a bypass. Old stone to new building, old timber to new fires, old fires to ashes, and ashes to the earth, which is already flesh, fur, and feces. Bone of man and beast, cornstalk and leaf, houses live and die. There is a time for building and a time for living and for generation and a time for the wind to break the loosened pane 
and to shake the wainscot where the field mouse trots, and to shake the tattered arras woven with a silent motto. In my beginning is my end. Now the light falls across the open field, leaving the deep lane shuttered with branches. Dark in the afternoon, where you lean against a bank while a van passes, and the deep lane insists on the direction into the village, in the electric heat hypnotized. In a warm haze, the sultry light is absorbed, not refracted, by gray stone. The dahlias sleep in the empty silence, wait for the early owl. In that open field, if you do not come too close, if you do not come too close on a summer midnight, you can hear the music of the weak pipe and the little drum and see them dancing around the bonfire. The association of man and woman in dancinga signifying matrimony, a dignified and a commodious sacrament, two and two necessarie conjunction, holding each other by the hand or the arm, which betokeneth concord, round and round the fire, leaping through the flames or joined in circles, rustically solemn or in a rustic laughter, lifting heavy feet and clumsy shoes, earth feet, loam feet, lifted in country mirth, mirth of those long since under earth, nourishing the corn, keeping time, keeping the rhythm in their dancing, as in their living and the living seasons, the time of the seasons and the constellations, the time of milking and the time of harvest, the time of coupling of man and woman and that of beasts, feet rising and falling, eating and drinking, done and death. Dawn points and another day prepares for heat and silence. Out at sea, the dawn wind wrinkles and slides. I am here, or there, or elsewhere, in my beginning. The passage of the couple dancing in that ceremony is in Old English. Remember I read Faulkner, I mean uh, Chaucer once in Old English to give you a feel. Think about how important that is. We go back into a past and participate in an event in, that, in the language of that time. So he takes us back into the past and it becomes part of this poem in the present. So just in that small way, he's, he's merging the two, um, okay? Okay, I, I've got to take a minute. This is for Fred and Francis. If I can, uh-oh, give me. I don't want to take but a minute. We've done this, but um, Fred was, had it on his mind a couple of weeks ago, and I, I don't want to look past him because I know um, he takes this stuff seriously. I, I, I chose this, first of all, because I think it's a lovely story, and it's, it's one I think all of us can relate to because we've had kids and we go to the lake we've experienced things like this. But even if it's not a lake, all of us have had these experiences. Remember, he goes to the, he returns to the lake um, that um, his father had taken him to when he was a boy. So the father used to make these family trips to this lake and he's, he's become a saltwater fisherman as, as we've not gone back to the lake for a long time, but he decides to go there with his son. 
And when they go, he was looking forward to seeing the old things again, or, or, to, or to seeing how things had changed. When he gets there, he sees the, the same things again and again, the same Coke bottles, the same track, um, the fly on the end of the, uh, the fishing pole. The, there were a few changes that weren't very significant. Instead of three tracks for the wagon, there were four for the car. I think there was a different kind of soda pop. The, the most grating change was the outdoor, outboard motor. And it's interesting that he under, underscores that the way he does because it seems to me it's his way of showing technology has really intruded into this quiet, placid lake. There's this modern machinery. But except for that, he's haunted by the sense of being part of a cyclical pattern of things. Okay? I just want to read a couple of passages and then go to this one thing, um, which was the reason for doing the, the piece. Bottom of the first page. I was right about the tar. It had to do within half a mile. It led to within a half a mile of the shore. But when I got back there with my boy and we settled into a camp near a farmhouse and into the kind of summertime I had known, I could tell it was going to be pretty much the same as it had been before. It's interesting. I think all of us have had this feeling. Um, here, let me have, because this is really important. We get older. We age. Um, but there are spots in our places, in our experiences that we return to that really haven't changed very much. And we become aware that the cyclical pattern is a part of nature. Winter, spring, summer, fall. Winter, spring, summer, fall. There's, nature returns on itself. There's, there's always a dying and a coming to life. That's a fixed pattern in nature. So part of our existence has this continuity or regularity. We can depend on it. Winter will come. Summer will be here. And he's finding that true, and it's reinforced with his son because he sees his son doing the same sorts of things he did. In the early morning, his son sneaks out the way he remembers sneaking out when he was a kid and going to the boat. I could tell it was going to be pretty much the same as it had been before. I knew it lying in bed the first morning, smelling the bedroom and hearing the boy sneak quietly out and go off along the shore. God, this is haunting because I think this, all of us know these moments. Um, I began to sustain the illusion that he was I and therefore by simple transposition that I was my father. This sensation persisted, kept cropping up all the time we were there. It was not an entirely new feeling, but in this setting it grew much stronger. I seemed to be living a dual existence. I would be in the middle of some simple act. I would be picking up a bait box or laying down a table for it, or I'd be saying something and suddenly it would be not I, but my father who was saying the words or making the gesture. It gave me a creepy sensation. Um, we've already done this, right? I'm doing, so it's, I'm going to do this really quickly. The question that I posed last week for everybody was, <clears throat> is this just a simple transposition? My That's a rhetorical question for me. My answer was no. Because when I read this, what struck me about it immediately is this is an example of the perichoresis, the indwelling of the persons. <clears throat> and the modern mind has no sense of it. I don't think anyone <coughs> has a sense of it. You know what the perichoresis is? The perichoresis is the indwelling of persons in the Trinity. St. Thomas, I keep forgetting this, 
can keep, keep saying I'm going to get this line from Thomas and I've through these now forgotten. There's this one passage where Thomas says, in this strange way, I have to get the passage. He says, in the Trinity, it's the only time in which three is not any larger than one. And I don't think I had that completely accurate, but because what he's saying is there's one God and three persons. They all share the divine nature. The, the, here's the Trinity. The Father conceives himself. The conception of himself is an image of himself. It's the Son. The love he feels for the Son is the Spirit. It can't be a force or a power because God is all being. He's a person. He's personhood itself. So to conceive of himself is not to conceive a force. It's another person, the Son. He's begotten, not made. The love between them is the Spirit. So they perfectly indwell. Each one is complete in himself. There's nothing lacking in any of them. There was nothing before, or, or the Son would have been made. He's begotten. He's co-eternal, because he's one with the Father. So there was nothing before, nothing after. It's very different from creation. Is that clear? Am I going too fast? That's all clear, yeah? So the, the love that they have between them is complete. Each one has a complete love. And three is no larger than one in that nature. I've got to get that quote from Thomas because it's, it seems to me something in physics has got to get to that. But Anyway, if you remember, if you remember in the Divine Comedy when Dante um, was greeted by Beatrice at the top of the Purgatorio and then she led him into the... Um, up the heavens to the Empyrean, which was a rose, the beatific rose. Think about how often rose, the image of a rose, comes up in Eliot's poem. The Empyrean is a petaled rose. It's the rose of the, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the save, the heavenly, the beauty of the heavenly kingdom. As they're going up from planet to planet, Dante has a thought, and Beatrice already sees the thought before he expresses it. Now, how can that be? And eventually, he does the same thing. We talked about this when we did the Divine Comedy. Because what happens as you approach God is your love becomes greater, more unified. You become more one with him and one with each other. So an indwelling takes place. And you remember, for those of you who are with me, remember that during that, that upper third of his journey, Dante keeps using reflexive verbs. I am in othering you as you are in othering me. I, God is in Godding himself. Um, I am in youing you. You are in me, me. That, that he needs a reflexive verb to show the reciprocal union that's forming, taking place. Is that clear? He's not Buddhist. In Buddhism, everybody becomes a part and they lose their individual identity because according to Buddhism, Individuality is a flaw, not for Christianity. As he goes up, he maintains his individuality while becoming one with another, perfectly indwelling. So that as they approach God, they begin to participate in the intimacy shared between the persons of the Trinity. That's the love that we've been called to. Now think about the implications of this, because to me it's sort of amazing. I, I don't think people think about first things, but these are first things. It's uh, Muslims and Jews believe in an isolated God. He's alone. 
There are no, it's a scandal to the, um, to the Muslims to think that there would be a companion to Allah. Because they look at the, the, the Son and the Holy Ghost as companions. That's, a, that's an anathema for them. We believe that Godhead is social, Trinitarian, communal. If we're made in his image, it means we were made to love and be loved. But that reciprocal action is of our nature. Imagine what it means to be, to believe in an isolated God for the Jews or the Muslims. Um, it's a very different dynamic that plays out in our human nature. So when E.B. White says, I began to sustain the illusion that he was I, and therefore by simple transposition that I was my father, this is, it persisted, kept curving up, saw everywhere and began to leave him with this creepy feeling. He was his father. I gave you the example last week. Um, I, I don't think I had read this piece when it happened. I think I came across this piece after this experience, but I, I told everybody the story last week. Um, shortly after graduation, I was teaching tennis, and I would come home every day. Amy was in her first year somewhere, and she always used to come to the door and greet me with a um, bright smile and bright eyes, and, and I would always go into the shower and take a shower, and she would always, you know, have kids let the water trill, and they go she would coo and trill and sing. <laughs> it was a joyous, I mean, she was just happy. I was glad to be home. She was glad to see me. She'd sit on the shower floor pan and let the water drip the way it drips over a child. She wasn't screaming because, you know, she was just enjoying it. We got used to doing that. One day I came home, Amy was sick. She didn't greet me with cheers or you know, cheerful expressions or bright eyes. And uh, I can remember being struck by it immediately when I came home. Went into the shower and took her in and she sat on the bottom of the pan and there was none of the tr trilling, the cooing. She was just quiet. My heart broke in that moment. I mean, it just, it was such a contrast between the way she usually was and I felt her sadness deeply. I mean, she was just sick. And in that moment, I was my mom. I mean, this is the story I told everybody last week. I was my mom. My mom and I had real difficulties with each other when I was growing up. But in that moment, I was her. Not a question in my mind. I was her looking at myself as a child and feeling the sorrow that she must have felt at similar times, the way a mother would when, you know, you have a child and then something happens and you're sad. I mean, you enter into the sadness. You feel it. It's um, not, for me, that was, this is not a transposition. That was the perichoresis, that there, that there is this indwelling in spirit that makes us one with another, um, even while you remain yourself. So I don't think E.B. White had any notion of the Trinity or the perichoresis or indwelling. I get no sense of it for the story. But this, to me, is one of the finest secular examples of what the modern world has lost sight of. And so it was one of the reasons I just wanted to use this essay so you could see that. We've lost the sense of indwelling. You know that from the stories. Take God out of the picture and, and man tends to be isolated and alone. That's the modern world. Man lives in isolation. Alone against the sky. That's the famous image. Um, here, <coughs> in, the, 
he, be, he becomes one with his father and he becomes one with his son in this very strange way. So <clears throat> that's why I wanted to do that. We could spend more time on it, but we've got to we've got to get to all these depressing things. <laughs> okay. Very very quickly. We 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 read the Eudora Welta stories and um, experienced this very unflattering view of women. Um, um, that view continues with Hemingway. It gets even darker now because three of the four stories deal with women who are um, what's a good word? Flawed. Hmm? Not my habit of trying to understate in this. Not very virtuous creatures. How about that? The the one question that I raised in Hemingway that I wanted to leave all of you guys with, um, because we went over the stories, I don't want to go back over them again, is this. It's clear that, and I, I think we mentioned it, that Hemingway converted. He became Catholic towards the end of his life and then took his life, if you, if you know anything about his personal life. Um, if you read his stories, you come away from his stories aware of his vision of the world. His vision of the world is a very negative one. The, the current way in which people would have seen it is his time is what then was called naturalism. Almost all of the great artists were writing with that worldview in mind. Um, there are no supernatural graces, there is no God, there's nothing like love, hope, or faith as we know it. The naturalistic world is a world constantly in decline. People are going to die. And people are like atoms, they're isolated one from another. So most artists writing during that period were, had their views shaped by that philosophy, what was called naturalism. If you look at Hemingway's stories, that's what you find, that all of these people are isolated. The couple in Hills Like White Elephant, yeah? Um, the old man, the deaf old man, even the two waiters in Clean Well-Lighted Place. Um, Francis McComber and his wife, is it Jill? What's her name? Jig. Sorry? Jig. 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 No, 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 that was in the Hills. Francis Clemmer's wife was... Um, Margo. Hmm? Margo. Margo. Um, Francis and Margo were at cross purposes. It's really clear if you look at their marriage that it's a contractual marriage. It's a marriage of convenience. In one sense, it's a perfect expression of what we know today as the social contract theory. The social contract theory goes back to Hobbes, Locke, and Rousseau. The principle of that theory was man lives in a state of nature, and in that state of nature, he's motivated by two principal drives, pride and fear. With those things driving him, he can only get into battles with each other, with other men. 
So in a state of nature, man's in a state of war. He's always fighting because those are the dominating motives in his heart, in his mind. Social contract theory said man is, exists in a state of war in nature and the only way that he can come out of it is by making a contract. I'll do this for you if you do this for me. So they form a contract, a contractual view of the world. That's what we see in the Macombers. Yeah? It's a world of compromise. I'll do this if you do this. So the principle isn't love. I mean, think about how radically different that is from the church because the church says, love another for that other's good, even to the point of sacrificing yourself. How easy is that to do? It's much easier to compromise, to get along. So every one of his stories rests on that philosophy, that view of life, that man is isolated and his ties with each other are contractual ties. I think Hemingway had five marriages, if I remember correctly. Um, now here's the question that I asked. If you look at each one of the pieces, they are um, impeccably done. They're beautifully done artistically. If you look at the setting, we talked about this, right? The, the setting, yeah, the setting is a metaphor for the action. We talked about this, yeah? The setting is a metaphor for the action. The layover um, railroad station is between two stops. It's a midway point. Um, where they're going, we don't know. Neither do they. It's a, it's a perfect image of the action taking place between the couple. They're at complete cross purposes and at a, at a crisis point in their life. The clean, well-lighted place, a bar, is a metaphor for heaven. It's an image of heaven on earth. But you know what's going on. It's the one place people can go to for consolation, but it doesn't keep people from trying to commit suicide or getting drunk. Um, they go there for companionship. The one waiter wants to get away. So the bar itself is a metaphor for the action. And we see that clearly in the pull or the prayer at the end, because remember, the, the older barkeeper, as the, as the evening is going out and he's getting tired, repeats the Lord's prayer. Ar nada, who art nada, nada be thy name. That is, he, he nullifies every positive thing. He takes it away. Because the world is nothing. And then it has that, it ends with that disclaimer. Um, um, lots, lots may have it. It's insomnia. Lots must have because people stay awake. That's a Hemingway disclaimer. It's his way of being ironic about a condition and not naming it while we understand what it is. The reason people are not sleeping in this world, the reason they're trying to commit suicide, is because they're in despair. They're alone. In the Francis McComber story, the, the safari hunt is a metaphor for the marriage. It's predatory. I think kill or be killed, wasn't that? That Sue's just tagged at kill or be killed. Hunt or be hunted. I mean, what we watch in the couple is that they're rivals to each other. They, they, can't, they can't let the other have the upper hand. They've got to be better than the other. So the marriage is full of rivalries. So there was not a story that wasn't artistically well done. And I, and I focused a little bit on Hills Like White Elephant because if you look at all the images in that, the white elephant, the drink, the licorice, the setting, all image the action. 
The white elephants are an image of an elephant that's unwanted because of the burdens. It's an image of the child. The drink, the what's the was what was, say it again. Anastatoro means the seed of the bull. How ironic. The licorice is bitter. So there was not an image in that story that didn't tell. So artistically, everything is speaking to the, to the action. Now, my question was, how can an artist create something with such order and purpose and beauty and believe in a world that has no order or purpose or beauty? If you live in a world of nothingness, where does that come from? And if, if and, I, and I, don't, I think artists would have maintained it, that this is, Wallace Stevens, who was one of the greatest poets of the 20th century, said, the only order in the world is the order in poetry. Because there is no order in the world, it's all chaotic. So, um, if that's true, then poetry gets elevated above our moral life. It becomes the only refuge from a meaningless world. And that's a recipe for idolatry. The people will turn to art for what they can't find in the world. If there's no religion, you take God out of it, where are people going to go? Well, in our art, football games, basketball games. No, seriously, entertainment. You're going to go to an entertainment world. St. Augustine called it civic religion. The civil religion today, football, basketball, arts, entertainment industry, that whole world is offset against a world which for most people has no meaning. They go to work and work all day so they can have enough money to pay for a baseball ticket because that is the one thing they look forward to. That's our world. So, thought O'Connor was depressing. <laughs> Okay, that's, we, that, that was Hemingway. Remember that his, his image, his artistic technique was described as the tip of the iceberg. He only gave as much as he had to um, to give a sense of everything beneath. So, for example, in Hills Like White Elephant, the couple never, they never mention the abortion. Never. They talk around it. We only get this couple talking past each other and don't know anything. But if we start looking at the setting, the drink, the licorice, the white elephants, suddenly it becomes rich with meaning. Um, and his image of man in the modern world was grace under fire, that a man stand up in the face of whatever difficulties confronted him. And my last word on that was, in one sense, that's very but today, in a well, Christian, post-Christian world, we would call pagan. That was a pagan ideal. It, by, and by the way, that's, that's the modern ideal in the respectable world. Going to suburbia, the ideal that holds most people up is respectability, dignity. That you, you work your life, you have this dignity, this respect, and, and if hardships come, you hold yourself up under them and get on. What would Dante have thought about that? Dignity? He fainted several times. He passed out. He cried. Beatrice scolded him. How's that for male dignity? As a Christian, there was a place for humiliation and a cross for Dante that, that Hemingway didn't have. 
Um, and the, I think my last thought on Hemingway was to ask you, if that's the ideal that you espouse in your poetry, and that's the ideal by which you try to live your life, what will be the effect of, on, of that on you as a man if as you're growing up you always have to outperform somebody else? What happens when you don't? I'm going to hope that's clear. I mean, it's, to me, it's a, it's a noble ideal. It's very pagan, very naturalistic. But it, it seems to me it can also be crushing. It's just really crushing. So let me stop there, and we'll, we'll get to Connor. But before I do, any questions about Hemingway, just briefly, to touch on before we go on? We are into the modern world. I don't think so, Doc. And it's interesting because I've read, a, I don't go into biographies a lot, but I know that some people um, try to explain that by talking about the mental, what they today they would call mental diseases that he suffered from, um, that he was taking medication, uh, I guess heavy, heavily medicated. and Depression? Depression would have been one of them and some others. Um, Probably bipolar. I don't know. I don't. I don't remember. But I mean, right, I happen to believe right we're all bipolar, secretly or in some ways. But heaven and hell are real for us. I don't know how any Christian could not be bipolar. If heaven and hell stand on either side of you, <laughs> you've got some pretty serious struggles to deal with in your life, whatever you do. But let's look at Flannery O'Connor. Um, take a look at the narrative point of view sheet that I gave you. Let me do this very briefly. We've been looking at, at various ways of presenting reality. Here are the major ones, I think there's probably more I, I could include another, but I think these are basic enough and, and cover the range enough so that they'll do for our purposes. There are five here, as you can see. The, the first one is a first-person point of view. You all know what that is, yes? A first-person point of view is a story told by a character in the story. So Huckleberry Finn, in Twain's Huck Finn, Huck tells his story of his adventures with Jim going downriver. Um, Pip, in Great Expectations, to me is one of the greatest first person. Pip tells that story, and if you know the story, it begins where he comes across this convict that he has to help out, and then a little bit later on, begins to receive this wealth, this help from, he thinks, Miss Haversham, somebody, some benefactor. At the end of the novel, he'll find out that the benefactor is, in fact, that criminal. So the person who made him a gentleman was actually a criminal. What Dickens is showing is that the whole criminal class, or the whole um, gentle class, rests on questionable foundations, injustices in the world. But it's from a first-person first point of view. Omniscient, Dickens told most of his stories from this point of view, is a narrator who stands completely outside the story as if he were God, telling everything that happens. 
Rarely in an omniscient story does the, does the narrator go inside the consciousness the way Faulkner does. Now, do you, do you see the graph? So R is the reader, N is the narrator. So in first person, the narrator's in the story. He's one of the characters, right? In omniscient, the R is the reader. The narrator takes us into the story. He stands outside of it. Are you all following? Third person limited is a narrator outside the story. It's not one of the characters. But typically, in a third person limited, the, the narrator will focus on one of the characters for this reason. To have a third person limited helps us to limit our experiences to that one character. So we tend to see things the way that character does. So for example, in Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, she's telling the story of Elizabeth Bennet. We tend to see things through Elizabeth's eyes, and that's important for this reason, because Elizabeth thinks she sees everything when she doesn't. And when she realizes that she was mistaken, we realize we were taken up in it, and we're taught to be careful of our own blindnesses, because very often we think we see things when we don't. So we enter into the irony. Remember the, the peripatia, the turn, in Pride and Prejudice, when, when Elizabeth C. realizes she, she misjudged Darcy, she feels terrible. She begins to see qualities in him that she missed in her pride. The title is Pride and Prejudice because pride always, always blinds us, always. So the advantage to that is that it limits, it limits us to what a character sees so that we feel the full effect of a recognition when it occurs and the turn. Central intelligence, again, is a narrator inside the story, but moving around from one character to another. Um, you can almost look at Hemingway's um, uh, Francis Macomber that way because inside that central intelligence, we're allowed to go inside of um, Wilson. We get his thoughts every once in a while. And we're also allowed to go inside the lion. I mean, we move about from character to character and have access to in, um, internal states of mind when you're inside that. Lyric, the stream of consciousness is the last one. We, we experienced that in uh, Sound of the Fury and the Benji, Quentin, and Jason episode, right? It's important to see that in the stream of consciousness, nobody's narrating. If you go online and you look at the study guys on Sound of the Fury, they'll say, Benji narrates the first second. Benji doesn't narrate anything. He's incapable of narrating. His story is being narrated. In the, in the uh, stream of consciousness, it's almost as if we've entered into a lyric mode. We're inside. You know how in lyrics, the, the general way of looking at lyrics is we overhear somebody while they're in their head thinking. We hear, like Frost when he's telling something. We overhear what's in his head. In the Benji thing, we overhear. It's like we're present, even though we're not. So it's interesting that that James Joyce is the one who did the his uh, work, Portrait of an Artist, is the one that broke this open. In Portrait of an Artist, Joyce is giving a narrative story of Stephen Dedalus. He's the one in the, in the labyrinth. Um, he gives us a story of Stephen Dedalus, but he does it from inside Stephen's consciousness. So we get a narrative storyline constantly from the inside. 
Faulkner took that up and learned from Joyce and did what he did with it. Sound of the Fury is one of the works that he used to do that with. What's interesting to me about this, how often are we aware that we use all of these different ways of understanding without realizing it? I hope that's clear. We don't just see one dimensionally. There are times when I think we stand outside of it like an omniscient narrator. There are times when we, I think we enter into. Artists are always trying to help us into an interior world to learn to see from the inside, both outside and inside, to enrich the way we experience each other. It's one of the reasons for doing this stuff. Um, we learn to see more, to feel more what's going on in the world. Okay. Flannery O'Connor. Um, every one of her stories is a little bit like the central intelligence. She is inside the story, narrating it, and very often we get in and out of people's states of mind. We very often get inside Mrs. May or Mrs. Turpin um, or one of the other characters in one of the other stories. Um, but we learn to move in and out of characters' lives. A couple of things to keep in mind when we read O'Connor. These are some notes from her own writing on her stories. The modern novel, she said, is characterized by the disappearance of the author. Not entirely, but for the most part that's true. Modern narrative is characterized by a disappearance. The modern writer has got to show, not tell. Dickens told. He held our hand and said, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening. So somebody was always there, right? It's, it's like an um, enabling parent. You know that from Go Down Moses. I remember all of you sort of getting lost and shaking your head because um, you had to figure out what Faulkner... We had to work hard to understand what was going on. What he wanted to do is present the world as it is. Because how often is there somebody next to us holding our hands to help us understand something? Very often we have to go through the world and work, at work hard at figuring out what does this mean? What's going on? What did he say? What does she mean? Or, The modern novelist merges the reader in the experience. He tends to raise the passions he touches on. If he's a good novelist, he raises them to affect, by their order and clarity, a new experience. Writing gives us a higher quality of experience. We enter into something that's been worked over. It's finer. It gives us a pleasure. What makes a story work? She says, a gesture, an action, totally right and totally unexpected. She, she uses an example in one of her essays, the end of what happens at the end of A Good Man is Hard to Find. You remember when the, when the grandmother says, well, you're one of my babies, you're one of my own, and the misfit shoots her three times. <laughs> we've got to come to that because I, that to me is, we've got to come to that story today, uh, even if we don't do the others. Um, 
The habit of art, she says, is reason-making. I want everybody to underline that, reason-making. That's from St. Thomas. The habit of art is reason-making. It's not just playing on emotions. It's the mind struggling to reveal a truth, to help us see something. Good fiction, she says, or at least the grotesque, is a counter to sentimentality and innocence. Her claim, and I believe she's right, the overemphasis on innocence today, people who don't like to experience violence because they want to they feel as if they are protected from it, um, she would say that living in that innocence will actually bring about a violence, that innocence is the cause of so much violence. It's unreal, it's dishonest. An overemphasis on innocence tends by some natural law to become its opposite. Where characters are most innocent in her stories, what they do leads to the greatest kind of violence. We see that again and again and again. That kind of, because we're not innocent, we're fallen. We're fallen creatures. We carry sin in us. Um, she says that the really good writer is prophetic. She calls the prophetic writer a realist of distances. <coughs> he sees something before him, but it intersects with something beyond, which is hard to put into words. Seeing near things with the extension of meaning and thus seeing far off things close up. So she's saying, this is, Dante would have called this analogical, that there's a literal level to things, but that literal level to things always implies an um, anagogical, <coughs> a, a heavenly divine order. Something is going on. The prophetic writer can take a simple gesture, something here, that reveals something divine in it. So in, in these kinds of writers, um, we're experiencing writers of depth, an extension of vision into the mystery of things. I think in some ways Hemingway does that in each of his stories with his settings, you know, like the, the safari hunt. It's an image of something predatory in a marriage. We, it, we, it becomes visual for us. We see that there's something going on in marriages that just below the surface that's hidden. It's important to see that. Grotesque comedy, Thomas Mann said, is the true anti-bourgeois style. Nature and grace are presented in collision. It produces the grotesque. And I want to stop for a moment. You know that Mrs. May has a fetish for being clean. I think Miss Turpin does too. Um, we live in a, I, I'm, this is me now, I, I think we live in an um, excessively puritanical culture. Everything has to be cleaned up, everything. And it has to be immaculately, spotlessly clean. The ideal of the bourgeois mind, the bourgeois soul, is to have everything in order and everything cleaned up. As if there's nothing else outside the grotesque is meant to shatter that because what the grotesque is showing is that good and evil are meeting and when good and evil collide it, it isn't clean and neat, it's grotesque. The best image of the grotesque are the uh, gargoyles. If you've been to our house, you know our house is surrounded. We've got gargoyles everywhere. 
because they're images of the grotesque. It's that disfigurement. We, we went over this in Dante. When good and evil meet inside of us, even no matter how calm we look outside, we know that spiritually something happens. Inwardly, it's grotesque. It's disfigured. So the grotesque is an antidote to the bourgeois life, the belief that we have everything under control, things are as we want them, neat, tidy, clean. Every one of the characters in Flannery O'Connor, most of the women, are, um, have a fetish for cleanliness. I think what O'Connor is showing us is that if you take God away, one of the ways in which you show you're among the elect, that you're among the saved, is to be clean. Because that's evidence that you're clean, you're saved. So the cleanliness, the, the, the over, being overly scrupulous about being clean is really a mask for not being clean inside. Remember when, um, when Enoch takes Hazel to the counter, to the little bar? He says, I'm not clean, I'm not clean. He's one of the few characters who admits, who knows there's something wrong with him. I think the, the, the misfit does too. So you've got all these misfit figures who do not fit in this bourgeois world because the bourgeois world says this is all there is. And it, Mary Grace, when she throws the book at Mrs. Turpin, she knows her mother and Mrs. Turpin are hypocrites. They act like they're really good on the outside. Inside, they are, they are Pharisees. I mean, there's no other word. They're Pharisaic. They're bitter, ugly, mean-spirited people. O'Connor says about most of his characters that most of them have hard heads. <laughs> None of us would know anything about that, I'm sure. She says, I found that violence is strangely capable of returning my characters to reality and preparing them to accept their moment of grace. This idea that reality is something to which we must be returned at considerable cost is one which is seldom understood by the casual reader, but it's one which is implicit in the Christian view of the world. I found, in short, from reading my own writing, that my subject in fiction is the action of grace in a territory held largely by the devil. If good and evil meet, there can't be anything but the grotesque. We live in a world that denies both of those. It tries to clean everything up. That's Mrs. May's way of looking at the world. She, she believes she's clean, that she's better than everybody else. Remember when she goes to the milking barn of green leaf? She's horrified to see that it's better than hers. She can't admit it. She wants to believe that she's better, that her children are better, because it confirms that she's safe. She's, she's among the elect. So the grotesque is, is a way of cutting through the pharisaic surfaces of our modern world, if I can put it that way. Okay, let me, let me look very, very briefly at the, let me stop here. I want to, I want to look at the stories, because um, I really want to get your thoughts about the ends of them, since most of them are so disturbing. Any questions about any of this, the grotesque or Hemingway, or any of O'Connor's statements?
if you remember, if you, if, if you go back to um, Dante for just a minute. If you go back to Dante's Inferno, remember it's we, what, what we call Infernal Comedy. We, we move from the lyric world into tragedy and comedy. Um, remember in Dante we had three phases of comedy. Infernal comedy in hell, purgatorial comedy in purgatory, and paradisal comedy. Does everybody remember that? Um, the, the mode of understanding in infernal comedy is irony. Irony. This is so important. This is going to be amazing, I think, right now. It's irony. How well do the characters see themselves in hell? Not at all. Yeah, not at all. It's grotesque. I mean, there's, the, there's this incongruity, this discrepancy between reality and the way they're living their lives. They don't even see. Mrs. May's like that. Mrs. Turpin's like that. These characters live thinking they're so good, but they're not. So there's an element of the grotesque just in that. They're so out of tune with things. So grotesque comedy has an infernal aspect to it. It's characters who think they're so good when the story shows us they're not. Purgatorial comedy, if you remember from Dante, when he left um, hell and went in to, to begin the mountain, the mode of knowing for purgatorial comedy is wonder. It's not irony anymore because the souls see themselves as they are. They're not afraid to see their sins, right? They've begun purgation, purgatory, their penance. We together? So if you remember, if you went up the ledges with Dante, he, he and the other souls were constantly filled with wonder. They saw Dante's shadow, wonder how his shadow was there. The stories evoked wonder. It's not irony. That, that irony's gone. The souls know their sins. They want to get to heaven. So they're full of wonder and happiness. They're glad to be doing penance because they know they're in sin. What's the mode of knowledge for the paradiso? It's not irony anymore. It's only partly wonder. It's wonder, awe, joy. They're moving towards God. Um, they've been freed of their sins. Remember Dante is crowned, I crown and mitre you at the top of the purgatory. He's on his way to heaven. He is now, St. Augustine says, love and do what you will. He's on his way to God. So everything that happens in the Paradiso is full of awe and joy. And, and a sense of gratitude. The sins have been forgiven. They're released from purgatory. Everything that happens is in gratitude and joy. Is that clear? Grotesque comedy, in a sense, is infernal comedy. That illusion that these, that these characters have that they're so good is being shattered. And the action always moves towards some gesture at the end, some act at the end that leaves us asking, are they saved or not? Did they receive their grace or not? Have they been open to it all along or not? So. At, at the core of grotesque comedy is this offering of grace and this question of whether, in fact, it's been received. Will a character be shocked out of, in this case, her, shocked out of her complacency to see who she really is and begin to become the person she was given to be? Yeah? Okay. Okay, let's...
Um, heart of the park. The central character is a man named Enoch. He wakes up in the morning and he feels that some strange thing is going to happen and he has to tell it to somebody. It, he has to communicate. There's this longing to share it and it, it has to be the right person. Um, he's made it a daily habit of going to the park to this um, frosty bottle place and having a drink and then going on to the animals. And surprisingly, um, Hazel Weaver shows up. He knows, he learns where Enoch is because the people at the gate say he always goes to the swimming pool to start the day so he can look at these women, I guess particularly one certain woman who goes there and dress very immodestly. It's like her body's coming out of a bathing suit. And Enoch is shocked that any woman could do that. She does it casually like there's nothing to it. I mean, she has no sense that what she's doing might be seductive. Um, when Hazel comes, he's asking for the address of this other couple and Enoch tells him he'll give it to him as soon as he goes with him to show him this thing. He takes him to the frosty bottle, they meet the waitress. It's there where the man, the woman flatters Hazel because she hates Enoch and says you shouldn't be keeping time with this guy. And Hazel's response to her is to say, this is on page six, come on Enoch started, we don't have no time to be sassing around with her. I got to show you this right away. I got, I ain't clean, they said. <coughs> it was not until he said it again that Enoch heard the words, I ain't clean. This is the fundamental thing at the center of these stories. He knows he's in sin. Enoch presses him harder and says, I got to show you. He takes him to the animals. All the animals hate him, and he finally comes to the museum. The mere mentioning of the word sends shivers through him. It's, it, it's a reminder of the power of words to evoke something strange. And then he comes inside the museum to this case, and you all know what happens. Um, on the bottom, page nine. See that there? Notice Enoch said in a church whisper, this has become hallowed, pointing to a typewritten card at the man's foot. It says, he was once as tall as us. Some Arabs did it to him in six months. He turned his head cautiously to see Hazel Weaver. All he could tell was that Hazel Weaver's eyes were on the shrunken man. He was bent forward so that his face was reflected in the glass. His face is reflected the, 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 the shrunken pygmy is underneath. The woman comes and looks in, grinning. Her face is reflected, grinning on the glass, over weavers. She snickered, put two fingers in front of her teeth. The little boy's faces were like pans set on either side to catch grins that overflowed from her. Hay's neck jerked back, and he made a noise. It was a noise like Enoch hadn't ever heard before. It might have come from the man inside the case in a second, Enoch knew it had. It had. Wait, he screamed, and tore out after. You know, he chases Hazel, and then um, there's this longing to commune. Um, Hazel won't have anything to do with it. He wants to get on and find this couple. He turns around and throws this rock 
that strikes him in the head, and it ends with this description. He sat straight up, frozen-skinned, and put his finger into it, and very faintly he could hear the blood beating, his secret blood in the center of the city. Okay. <laughs> What's going on here? Let me, let me give a background. Try to see if we can. Let me give a background before we go any farther. And then I want to come back to this this pygmy at the center of the city. You know who Enoch is. Son We've covered this before. Son of Cain. Right. And the first city that Cain found. Right. Enoch is wait. So let's so Cain is exiled after killing Abel. He goes out of the presence of God. His son Enoch is the founder of the first city. So the first city, when the city comes into existence, it comes into existence in an effort to live without God. It's man attempting to be self-sufficient. Now remember how important that is because almost Mrs. May, particularly Mrs. Turpin, all of these characters pride themselves on being self-sufficient. They don't need anybody. I mean, that modern ideal. The city comes into an existence in an, in an attempt to be self-sufficient, to live without God. So the city, we, this, we, we did this early on. Um, so the city is always double-edged, paradoxical. It, man accomplishes great, great things. All we have to do is look at cityscapes today to see how extraordinary our power, airplanes in the sky. And the, the city is an expression of something really great and noble in man that he could build something like that, to, to create his own world. But it's also the place where the most horrendous things go on, the greatest kind of violence. It's not always hidden either. There's a lot of hidden violence going on. So, and remember, when the story starts, Enoch enters the zoo, and it's called the park. It's at the heart of the city. On either side are two trees. So in, I think in one sense, we're meant to recall the garden and the two trees. Yeah, good and evil. Um, and he enters the, the garden with, I think, with the sense we're to have is, it's, it's our effort, the guard, the zoo, the park, is our attempt to hold on to that Edenic garden ideal that I've been harping about for months now, that it's so much a part of our psyche, the suburban ideal, the park. We go to the park to get away from the structures and the oppressiveness of the city. What does he find at the center of the park? So what are we to make of this? Uh, wait, one other thing too, interestingly, take God out of the picture, this is the case here, take God out of the picture and a strange thing happens. There's nothing that Enoch does that does not take the form of a ritual. Take the mass away. Take, this is interesting. Take the mass away. What does man do? He will create his own rituals. It's as if deep down in us there is this longing for some solemnity to, to give a constant, a meaning to our life. I think about this often. I mean, most of us have habits, yeah? We, have, we, we want things a certain way. <laughs> if five children come into your life suddenly for two weeks, what happens to you? <laughs> My, Suzanne and I are still hoping somebody will invite us <laughs> to share an open room for 
what happens if you have a certain habit of doing things a certain way and it gets thrown off? I mean, how, how well do we deal with those things? It's really interesting that they take the form of habits and, and the habits take on the, the character of a ritual. Take those away and it's as if our day didn't quite go right. So there's some mysterious sense here in which ritual or order is instinctively, deeply a part of our life. And you know that from Enoch because he has to do this. I mean, he's so urgent about it. He keeps telling Hazel, not now, not now, wait till we get there and then I'll get, you know, He's insistent. He has to do this a certain way or it won't go right. So in place of the sacred, when it's taken away, are all of these man-made rituals that are grotesque, comic, um, because they're not the real thing. They're a substitute for the genuineness of rituals that have God as their center. So what do they find? What's the meaning? I mean, what are we to make of the end of it? when they come across this case. Fred, did you have something? I, I have to be honest. I don't have a lot on this one. Of all four stories, this is the one that I struggle with the most. Yeah. I mean, I, I get the part with the, the good and the evil and the need for a ritual and the absence of, of, of God. But I, I guess, to me, if the, the pygmy uh, was maybe a replacement for God, something that he was fixated on in the absence of having God. But the other thing that, that kind of bothered me was the, the man in blue reoccurs re, you know, twice in the story and is the one that ultimately throws the, the rock at, at Enoch. And the woman who, you know, he's first watching in the pool and then she's the one that suddenly shows up in the museum. And, and apparently she's the one that calls the guards on them, that shows up is the reason they wind up, you know, running out of the museum. That part I just, honestly, I, I, couldn't, yeah. I couldn't come up with. I think, I think Hazel runs because he's, that cry that comes from him. I think, I think what we're meant to see here, we've talked about this, are, are the modern, begin, I've talked, one of the most important questions we can ask ourselves is what are our beginnings, high or low? In the ancient world, you know what they are. They're high, descendants from God. What are they in the modern world? Absolutely low. A black hole, monkeys. I think what we're seeing in this pygmy that used to be human-sized is modern man shrunken because that's what man has become in the modern world. And it's appropriately that we would find him here in the heart of the park. This is, this is the travesty of the ideal, the Edenic ideal we're trying to recover. And this is what we've done to ourselves. So why is Enoch so fixated on him yet? Good question. Why is he fixated? But does he, because he sees something that nobody else understands. I mean, he sees that this, I mean, I was waiting for what the hell was in the park. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and then, a pygmy, right? Know what it was, at right? First, and I and I had no idea what it, what it meant. Yeah. But it was like it was sacred to him, and so he had to show this sacred object that meant. But it was pointing to whether or yeah. not he was aware that yeah. man shriveled in the sea yeah. or yeah. lost his soul somewhere. I'm not sure. <clears throat> I don't know what. Oh, sorry, Sue. Go ahead. 
No, no, I wasn't giving Enoch that much credit, I guess. He was, to me, he was sort of searching after the divine, but the way he was searching led him to something in the word grotesque. But I didn't take it, I mean, you may be right, I just didn't read it as, he got it. It seemed to me, you know. By got it, meaning what? That he, I mean, he understood it as divine, or he understood the... I, mean, I don't think that's I, what Tom was saying. Well, okay. Is that what you're no, saying? Well, I, I'm saying that, I'm not sure what I'm saying, but uh, <laughs> I'm just thinking that, that there was such urgency to get to this object. And uh, it was like, or his life was not going to have any. He had to share this and then let go. I mean, I, mean, I don't know if he dies at the end when he gets hit. No, I don't think so. I'm not sure, but, but I'm just thinking that that obsession was you're, possessed, you're totally possessed by it because if you don't do it, something terrible is going to happen. Yeah. You know. And, yeah. And maybe he thinks that if he has people see this, then something will change. But I'm, you, it, think, it you think he sees it? You think he sees? I, I don't. I don't. That's a, that, I don't think he sees it. He, but he there's an instinct in him about about what's there. Yeah, but it's not a kind of like. Right? I think it's a travesty. It's a parody. I don't think he. I don't think I don't think he's searching for the divine, and I don't think okay. that exists here. That's part of the irony of the story. I guess what I meant was you talk about longing, and we have mm -hmm. the desire in mm -hmm. bread, desire. Mm -hmm. So I saw that desire in Enoch, and so, but I don't. I mean, I think he's. I don't know. I don't. I mean, I don't think he understands it. I think he... I think what's compelling for me, it's perverted. He yeah. if, if you take God out of the picture and you've been raised in this world and nothing in your psyche has place for that, but the nature of your psyche should be for that, for mystery for God, and that's gone, it seems to me you're in the position that Enoch's in. That there's this longing for something you can't, and it has a far greater meaning than you can account for Remember, he, he has two sides to him. They don't connect, the blood and the words. Um, but he, he finds in this a representation of mystery in some perverse way. It's a, it, to me, it just reinforces the sense that if God's out of the picture, man makes all of these substitutes that, that don't satisfy. And it's interesting to me that when the woman looks over and when Hazel looks over, their reflections are caught on the glass as if they coincide with the pygmies that what, what she's showing us is that this is this is what we've made of ourselves that we are shrunken creatures um, in this world um, and he, Hazel is horrified by it runs off and that um, it might have come from the man inside the case in a second Enid knew it had wait he screamed and out um, is that the cry of the shrunken person inside of The misfit is going to be the same thing. I mean, the, we'll, we'll get to it in a second. I mean, of all the characters we've read, he's the one that takes most seriously the search for God. He's a seeker. His father says that. The grandmother has no sense of Jesus, even though she keeps saying, pray, pray, pray. The misfit has a much truer sense of Christ, but he, he knows he lives in a world in which there is no justice. Um, things are out of tune. Um, 
I'm getting ahead of myself. One of the, it seems to me, one of the things we bring away from the good man is hard to find is we can't account. If we take God out of the picture, is it really possible to say that the justice we think we maintain is a true justice? How many people go to jail? How to put this? And take on punishments that are commensurate with their sin. And how many have to suffer something far greater? And how many people never have to deal with their sins because they're covered up or hidden? I want, hold on. A friend, one of the colleagues at um, UD, I don't want to, her father was put in prison involving a spy case. And beautiful woman, lovely, lovely woman. Um, and I remember trying to write him a letter, and, and my, just um, because I was horrified at the thought, and um, she was such a wonderful person, the thought of what that family had to bear. And, and Catholic, cheerful, bored, you know. But I thought about his being in prison for the rest of his life and my being out, aware of my own sins, and thinking, he's in there, the misfit. Look to the right wall, look to the left wall, look behind me wall, look up ceiling. That's your world. For the rest of his life, he's going to be there, and I'm here, aware of my sins. I mean, I was so aware of the injustice of that for a moment. Um, I mean, how many people do embezzlements who have, who have no conscience about it, who do not think somebody's in jail and I should be there, they're just going to keep embezzling? The injustices in our world are rife, and the misfit belongs to that. <clears throat> So when we look at this shrunken man, it seems to me that figure of that shrunken man means far more. That condition of shrunkenness contains far more in it than any simple reading would give it, I think is what I'm trying to say. Fred? Well, the one thing I, I did kind of take away from the story, which may or may not be valid, but in the, in the essence of God, Enoch's world is totally perverted. It falls in a sense that everything he believes is wrong. Everything he perceives is wrong. He thinks the the girl at the bar is in love with him, and she can't stand him. So the one person that he thinks it's so important to show what he 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 knows to is is a criminal. Uh, when the when the woman sees what it is that he's so fixated on, she laughs uh, mm -hmm. because it's yeah. it's funny. Um, so I guess the, she grins all the time anyway. Well, well that's true. Yeah. So I, I guess that's the one thing that I, I kind of walked away from it thinking is that maybe what she's trying to show us is what life is like in the, in the true absence of God. Of, of, of God. Yeah. And that I, I wasn't I wasn't sure because I know one of her key things is this this revelation at, at the end that her characters had the opportunity to embrace. And I, in, in this particular story, I, I wasn't sure that Enoch ever really got that, that moment of grace or that that revelation. I didn't. In, in all the three other stories, I saw it clearly, but in this mm -hmm. one, yeah. not so much. Yeah, yeah. I don't think Enoch got it. I think Hazel got it. Hazel. I said I don't think Enoch got it. Yeah. That's why he went running after Hazel. Yeah. Um, 
because he thought maybe Hazel could help him with it. But Hazel got it. Well, we don't know. I mean, it raises a question. It's hard to say anything for sure at the end of this. Um, we, we've got to go on because I, Mike, you had something. Yeah. Uh, the part that really got to me was uh, when they went into the zoo, okay, where the absence of God starts there because now we have reverted ourselves back to, uh, say, an animalistic uh, environment. And what really hit me was the shrunken man. And then it, it brought a little something to my mind saying that our morals have taken a step back. And that's how they take on the animalistic nature in us and that we revert back. We don't even think of God anymore. We just think of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I th if, if, if we could take the principle that I mentioned with Hemingway, that the setting is a metaphor for the action, what happens in the story, and you take the, that case, the glass case with the pygmy in it at the center of the park, at the center of the city, it's as if she's showing, take God out of the picture in this longing that's inherent in our nature to go back to the garden, to return, to recover the garden. What we've done um, to pervert that longing, because we don't acknowledge God, is, is ironically created this garden world that's a travesty of the garden. And at the center of it is an image of ourselves, what we've done. The modern man is this shrunken figure. And this is the this is the return to the Eden that you know we'd so long for. So she's showing us what happens w with what modern man does with that longing when he takes God out of the picture. I don't think Enoch understands the significance of this shrunken man, and that's why he's trying maybe to have somebody else explain it to him. Or sh I, see, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I, I don't see him that conscious. But what I, you may be right. But my sense of Enoch is. He carries enough instinctively, who I think you said, it, he carries enough of, of, in him instinctively of wanting, as if instinctively something in him knew that there was more. Right. The bottom of the page. That there's something instinctively in him that wants to participate in mystery. Yeah. And he, he doesn't see that it's perverted, but that's, that's a part of the longing in the human being. Page one, the bottom, it says, but there was something the card couldn't say, and it couldn't say what was inside him, a terrible knowledge without any words to it, a terrible knowledge like a big nerve growing inside him. He could not show the mystery to anybody. Yeah. Yep. So I think he's, he's puzzled by this. And drawn to it. Instinctively, there's something in him that can't, it's so... It's so much a part of our nature that even if we deny it, it's going to come out in some perverted form. So, so we all need to pray, Lord, that I may see. And I, that came, uh, thought came to me on page 8. You know, his eyesight was very poor. He squinted and they got a figure that was behind him. There were two small figures <coughs> jumping on either side of it. And since he was the seeker, those words never come out, but it sure made me think, at least I was praying for him, Lord, that I may see. Literacy, 
literally and metaphorically and on a deeper level. Yeah. And then above that, on the third paragraph, I came to my, it is empty, it's empty. They kept, it, it's empty, empty, he shouted. What do you have to look for in that old empty page? And then the whole thing, shouting of it's empty. Then thought about Magdalene at the tomb. Yeah. It's empty. Yep. It's empty. Yep. Okay, that does it for Brian O'Connor. <laughs> when we meet next week, I'd like to do Revelation and Greenleaf fairly quickly, and I'd like to focus on A Good Man is Hard to Find because I really want to. To me, that ending is one of the most powerful in all of her stories, and in some ways one of the most subtle, one of the most difficult to, to wrestle with. So I'd like to just go through Revelation briefly and Greenleaf briefly, and then do that. If we have time next week, we'll do the Faulkner and um, Porter, Byron Judas. If we don't, we'll do them the following week. I think that's according to schedule anyway, so, so we have that extra week built, built in. Can, can anybody can anybody help out with food next week? Anybody volunteer or something who hasn't done anything? She always brings it. That's why I don't. You've already hold on. Um, is Mike and Lois? Can you or Ka Kathy? Mike, are you? Have you guys brought food? Have you brought it? Oh yeah. Okay. Can't be gone. Can't be gone. You have to be here. Not again, sir. <laughs> okay. See you guys. Have a have a good week. I hope we went. I, if any of you want any muffins, there's still some muffins left to take home.
perspective. We weren't, we weren't in your class when you guys did it. Oh, okay. Go back and go back and read this. Oh, I, I, I couldn't. I mean, you, that's but, 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 way but, but he, he talks about he, he decides will be leading into each other. And that's the same description. And what are we supposed to do with the open? I don't think we should be reading He's probably the most important philosopher of the 20th century. It's the rape of Europa. He's Thomistic. Through and through. And he's Aristotelian, so he knows the metaphysics. The way you know ABCs, and it's just, he knows it that well. And he's in a number of books, he's made the point that Heisenberg and Bohr, so many of the modern physics have done, line up with Aristotle's notions of fundamental principles. In the metaphysics, and Dante would have known all of that. The way, the way, a really brilliant mind, you know, who who had the sciences and history, and not just. I mean, today you grew up in literature. It's rare to find somebody but but Dante would have been raised on that, so he would he would have known those metaphysics. So he was bringing he was he was bringing that so you could see that. So he saw things, and the way he imaged them would. Image. We'd be closer to what I can't do this because I If you know like a simple explanation or a description and a visual description of what you just did, send it to me. If, it, if it's verbal and it's scientific, don't bother. Well there is a there is a there is a Yeah, last time I gave those to uh, and a simple explanation. The simple explanation yeah, part so is a lot harder. Well, uh, I'll send you the picture, but I just, because you talk about Dante so much, I just found it fascinating yeah, yeah. That, that he would come up with his I wish, I wish you could get me something. Comedia, and then centuries later, it's the, it's the key to yeah. Albert Einstein's Theory of general activity. You know. I just find that see, see, there's got to be something there. You know? Well, yes. what what's there is you should have you should have gone into literature in the first place. <laughs> it's just taking it's just taking you a long time to see that. But I, I'm seeing them merge more and more all the time. You guys are that says you're reading. That says you're reading really good things. <laughs> so tell me, Enoch was in the Old Testament. You, he was thrown. No, he, if you go back in the Old Testament after the Cain Eagle thing, when okay, the Cain gets exiled, in the chapters after that, um, there will be descriptions of Enoch as the founder of the first city. It, it, it doesn't go into the city, it just says. What? But that whole the division between. Uh, how how Jews started and how. Yeah, how, how they. Uh, the, I, I don't say the good Abraham, son. That's later on. Abraham, Abraham, and the and the call out of the line happens. Like, this is the middle oh, part of Genesis where. Oh, okay. Cain kills Abel. God exiles him. Shortly after that, it describes the descendants, and Enoch's the first one. But oh, it will yeah. be. I mean, that will until you get into the historical accounts where. 
Abraham was called out. And oh, like, okay. You know, if that's what you're. Yeah, that's what. Yeah, you know, that's yeah. later. Okay. This part is in that whole beginning that's so mythic, so drives it drives literal minded people nuts because it's so mythic. It doesn't square with historical readings the way that Abraham. Oh, I, oh, I see. Okay. Well, we got lost today. We couldn't follow in the beginning. What? Right? We didn't know what page or who was. <laughs> That's because I wasn't in the book until the very end. <laughs> 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 I 